That would have been a touchdown. Instead, they got to try to get there again. Herbert going to take it and get it. Touchdown. Chargers win it. Hey now. hey now! <laughs> it is the Sportscasters, the season 10 finale. My name is Steve Bennett, and with me tonight, recording the finale, is the sweet Paula Bennett. How you doing, baby? Good! <laughs> like I said, it's a special episode of the Sportscasters, uh-huh. the season 10 finale. Uh, we've had a great season. Started way back in January. And what's crazy about January is I had just had surgery number two and was waiting to have surgery number three. Uh, And the season premiered on, I got the stats here in front of me, on January 16th, 2020, Andrew Marchand from uh, the New York Post and Matt Crossman were on. We talked about, I know Matt talked with me about the the passing of Neil Pert. So here we are, and we are 25 ep- 24 episodes later. Uh, like I said, season 10, episode 25, The Sportscasters. This is the last one. Today on the show, we have John Wertheim, uh, the executive editor at Sports Illustrated, and then also a correspondent for 60 Minutes. Uh, so I just did this earlier today, a really great interview uh, with Mr. Wertheim, who was on the eighth episode of the Sportscasters way back in 2011. He joins us. Also, Jeff Duncan from The Athletic will join us after the book club update. He is going to talk to us about his book, which is called Peyton and Breeze, The Men Who Built the Greatest Offense in NFL History. So that's the show for today. Oh, the book club, I'm going to give you some recommendations some holiday book recommendations if you're looking for a last minute stocking stuffer i can do that and then in one last thing we're going to look back we're going to look back at the entire season and i will look ahead a little bit to season 11 uh, which will be the 10 years of the sportscasters all right first things first today and that's we have paula with us today and uh paula what is going on in your world? What are you getting ready for and excited about these days? I'm excited for Santa coming. Santa's coming? Yeah, we need Mary. We cookie for Santa, milk for Santa, and carrots for reindeer. Wow. Yeah. What are you hoping that Santa Claus brings you this year? All the stuff I put on my things. Well, what'd you put on your list? I put on a new bed sheet, a Barbie, um... I don't remember all the stuff because I sent it in the mailbox. <laughs> you sent it in the mailbox? Yeah. And did Santa write you a letter back? Yeah, he said, Paula, we need some milk and cookies. <laughs> yeah, like that stuff. It's kind of funny because I don't know how to say Santa stuff yet. That Santa, he loves yeah. that milk and cookies, huh? Yeah. He just loves that stuff. That's mm-hmm. his That's his joint. Yeah. Yeah. So what else uh, What else do you do on Christmas? Like, who do you see? 
Are there any traditions? Mm, yeah, there is one. Opening the presents. Opening the presents. When do we do that? First thing in the morning? First thing in the morning. Yeah, do you know all the different houses we go to and stuff? Yeah. Yeah, we go to grandma's. Yeah. And everybody's house. Yeah, we go all over, right? In two yeah. days. Here and there and here and there. Yeah. It's tiring. Yeah. But you got a lot of gifts to open. Yep. Yeah. We need to open them every day. Yeah. How's school doing? Good. Yeah. Super good. What are you learning in school? We're learning about everything. Okay. Well, on the on the uh, podcast today, we have John Wertheim. Any thoughts on John Wertheim? Yeah. Nope. No, no thoughts on him? Yeah. What about Jeff Duncan? Any thoughts on him? Yeah. Yeah. What about him? He may be going to do a little bit good, and I hope he does. You hope he does good? Yeah. One other thing we got to tell the people before we get started is that the 24-inch podcast. podcast. Yeah. You want to tell them about that? Tell them about the 24-inch podcast. Tell yeah, the people. it's going to have like Dave in it and Hollywood Dave. Dave yep. And, and who else? And Dad and Paula. Yeah. And what do we usually talk about? We usually talk about sports and everything. Yeah. We talk about Hulk Hogan and we talk about his run. Uh, if you noticed on the podcast feed, you may have noticed that there is another podcast showing up. And that's called the 24-inch podcast. I do it with Hollywood Dave Rollins. We've done two episodes so far. Uh, the first one we did covered Hulk Hogan versus King Kong Bundy at WrestleMania 2. And then the second one, which came out on Monday, was the second episode where we featured Kamala and his 86 December and January 87 matches uh, versus Hulk. And I'm having a lot of fun doing this. I kind of handpicked Dave for this project. And this podcast is going to come out every two weeks. And the sportscaster will come out the other week. I'm hoping to get into a real nice rhythm like that in 2021. So that's where we stand. All right, so let's recap. We'll take a break. We'll come back with John Wertheim. Then we're going to do the book club update. Then we'll have Jeff Duncan on. And then one last thing is going to be about season 10. We'll talk about the guests, the interviews, the ups, the downs. And then we will look ahead to season 11 which is 10 years of the sportscasters, and I'll explain why uh, season 10 wasn't 10 years, but season 11 is. There's a reason for that, and I'll tell you all about that. So that's the podcast for today. Paul, anyone, anything else you want to mention before we move on? Yeah. One thing. Okay. I got stung by a bee, and also I'm okay. Okay. You got stung by a bee? That was like in the summertime during T-ball. Yeah, it was not fun. <laughs> no? It, it was, like, really hurting. It really hurt? Yeah, like, on, like, this buddy. But Daddy took care of it. Yeah. All right. All right, with that said, we'll take a break. We'll be right back with John Wertheim. Our first guest tonight is a graduate of Yale University. He is an editor for Sports Illustrated and a correspondent. At 60 Minutes, he's been coming on this podcast since the eighth episode back in 2011. A warm sportscaster's welcome to John Wertheim. Hey, Mr. Wertheim, how you doing today? Welcome back. Thanks, and congratulations. I'll, uh, if you're too modest to... Uh... <laughs> To say it, I'll do it myself. You're you're closing in on ten years, which is just remarkable. Good, uh, good for you. 
Yeah, it's crazy to think, you know, I always remember that I started the day after the Oregon and Auburn BCS National Championship game that Cam Newton was the star of. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I, I might last longer than Cam Newton's NFL career, it looks like. Cause I, I, I was going to say, I, th- I think you're trending, you're trending yeah. in a better direction. Yeah. <laughs> but I always think of that game. I remember I was watching it with a notebook thinking about what the hell is an interview and what am I going to ask Jeff Passan tomorrow because I've never done this in my life. But, um, yeah, you were on – I did some research, which is pretty exciting. You were on the eighth episode of the show which was in March of 2011. So we've been talking on this show for almost 10 years as well. I remember driving to John Jones' house in Albuquerque, New Mexico in 2011 when he was still kind of sort of undiscovered and talking to you uh, as I was trying to find this location where i'm sure he no longer lives in uh the north side of albuquerque new mexico so uh wow great story yeah, it's been a while it's yeah been a while. We're, we're dating ourselves we sound like old men you know and it's funny too because when you were just i mean just but you were a senior writer at the time certainly weren't on 60 minutes yet so it's also we've been with you for you know an evolution of your career and it always always gives me a smile when i have 60 minutes on i'll say this when i was a kid you know, my parents were divorced, and I go to my dad's house on the weekend. And I always knew it was just about time to leave my dad's and go back home for the school week when Pat Summerall would say, you know, 60 minutes except for on the West Coast. It was like the – it was it was the doom of reality, you know, Pat Summerall saying that 60 minutes is on next. Uh, and now every time I watch it and, and it's like, oh, now I'm John Wertheim, I just get a, like a huge kick out of that. I don't know. I'm sure you do too, but – it's pretty incredible to uh, to see you on there all the time. Ah, I appreciate that. I can't. Remember, I think it's the uh, you remember the comedian Gary Goldman. Yes, he has a great. Uh, yeah. yeah, I just thought he has With a great special, States. but I just thought he has a good good sixty minutes riff himself. So uh, anyway, yeah. um, no, it's funny. Yeah. So you've been doing some amazing stuff on there. I know last time we talked, you were pretty pretty early in the run. Like I remember you had done the thing about Harvard about the magazine. And we had talked about that and some other things. I think the next thing you were about to do was the bridge story. Um, but, man, you've done some cool ones. I want to talk about a few. Let's talk about LSU because it's crazy. September 20th that aired. And Ed O is on top of the world. He's so cool in that piece. You know, so confident. They had, had the dream season, probably the greatest LSU team of all time. First Heisman winner. You know, national championship. And I've actually heard, like, will Coach O survive the season rumors and stuff like that this year? It's crazy how much things can change in the cyclical world of college football in one year, even for a powerhouse like LSU, huh? Even in a pandemic year, yeah. uh, when we should be giving wide berth. Yeah, no, I mean, that that piece, uh, you know, you, these pieces take a, often take a while to you know, you take some time to set up and some time to plan and exactly what you said. This was, uh, you know, it was, hey, April, May, here, here's this coach. Local boy makes good. He's, he's a Cajun and he's coaching in Louisiana. They just won the national title. And it took them a long time to get to this point. And there are a lot of ups and downs. And, you know, it seems like a pretty 
you know, it's, uh, I don't want to say paint by numbers, but you know, it's a yeah. piece. It's what it is. It's a colorful character. You'll talk a little bit about Louisiana and, and, um, yeah, that story, um, first it got complicated on account of, uh, of COVID, but obviously, uh, as, as much of a dream season as last year was for LSU football, this has not, uh, not been the case. You know, in Sports Illustrated, we used to talk about the SI curse. And sure. It seemed like every time someone was on the cover, they blow out their ACL within days or the mm-hmm. team would suddenly go on a losing streak. I'm sure a lot of that was just, uh, you know, laws of probability and coin flips. But, um, you know, I, I think we have a 60 minutes curse going, uh, at, least, at least with LSU football, because it's, yeah, I, I suspect also he, he would not be not only not in as good a mood, but he would not be quite as accessible and hospitable. I mean, he was, he was great to deal with. We went down there in the first few days of August and it was, you know, it was the middle of COVID and we wore masks and were careful, but you know, we were at practice and in the football facility and here's, here's my mom's address, go down there and she'll cook for you. And it was all, uh, you know, he was, he was on top of the world and uh, it's been, it's been a rough 90 days for coach O. Was that story originally intended to, because I know you said you were April, May, you were doing it too. Did, was it originally intended to air, you know, a few few weeks earlier when SSC season would normally start? And then was it held back until it did finally start late September? Like, was there a chance you wouldn't have even aired that if they canceled the season? Like, was what were the moving parts in terms of how it would air? Was there anything there or no? Um, that's a good question. I mean, it was it was on the season opener. I mean, it was for 60 minutes oh, it was okay. on the season, season oh, okay. premiere, so I don't think it could have gone earlier. But, yeah, I mean, we that, that's the thing. I'll sort of, you know, give, give some industrial secrets. I mean, basically, you, you know, when you do these interviews, you sort of shoot them and ask questions to cover a lot of, uh, a lot of different scenarios. So I, I think we would have been covered if they said, you know what, season's off. Um, we would have had enough to still do still do the piece, and as as it turned out, we ended up putting a fair amount of COVID COVID protocol in there. Yep. Um, but no, I think I think sort of uh, it's just hey 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 here's the fun guy and college football season starting, and these are the defending champions, and within a matter of weeks, um, it got to be a more complicated story. That that would not be the story you would get if you went to Baton Rouge tomorrow and started in on a coach OP. Right. Yeah, at, the, at least it seemed like they salvaged the season a little bit by beating Florida. You know, it seems like there's a little and they had, you know, a great recruiting class again. I mean, I think they're going to be all right ultimately. I mean, hey, everyone got drafted in the first round. You know, or the second round, you know, it happens, right? I mean, I mean they were they were the loaded team last year because they had all those stars that went to the NFL, you know? So Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's yeah. that's um we sort of expect these teams to always reload and right, replenish. Right, because of Bama, but, you know, because of Bama. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, right, Bama's, Bama's set a bad example. But, yeah, um, yeah you, you put a record number of kids in the NFL draft, it stands to reason you, you may slip a notch the next year, but uh, including your quarterback. But, um, yeah, it's wild world of college football. Was that the first time you met Jerry Seinfeld? Was that the uh, um, that's a good question. I get. I don't know. I mean, I'd probably seen him at Mets games and stuff. But yeah, sure. that was the first time we had. Uh, yeah. Let me ask. He's you, great. Let me ask he's, you he's this. Very cool. How do you get to be the one that does the Seinfeld piece? Did you? Did you pitch that one? Uh, did they come to you? 
you know, it makes a lot of sense to me that you'd be the be the Ed O guy, you know, given your background. And it's not, I'm not saying it doesn't make sense you did Seinfeld. Just to, I'm just wondering, like, maybe maybe this isn't necessarily even just a question about Jerry, but your stories in general. Is it you pitching them? Are they coming to you? Is it a combination of both? Like, how does it land on, you know, John Wertheim being the guy? I remember when they did a piece on Howard Stern. I've listened to Howard Stern every day of my life since, you know, 1994. And I still do that despite having not listened to a Howard Stern show since 2014. I listen to all catalog stuff. I don't listen to current stuff. But I remember when the, the guy that I've trying to think who it was that walked with him into took him back to his old neighborhood and everything. But I remember him being in the studio and them talking about him being the one that was going to do the story and was maybe going to be someone else. How does this happen in 2020? How do you end up being the Seinfeld guy? Man, now I want to see who did the Howard Stern. Piece. I'm looking it up um, right now. I'll look it up right now while you answer. I would guess if I had to. I mean, Anderson Cooper. I saw did Eminem. Yeah, it wasn't him. Um, it was an Afri- It was the African American guy, the older guy, kind of tall. Oh, Ed, Ed Bradley. Ed Bradley. That's who it was. Yep. Um. So um, no, it, it's a good question. I mean, you know, so, sometimes the stories are. Uh, the the producers are fantastic, and it's really, it's, it's some in some ways it's really a produce. You know, you, they they get the byline on, on the sort of magazine when you do the uh, when you stand yeah. up to start each segment. It's always the producer's name. It's not the subject. It's not the correspondence. It's the producer's name. Um, the producers do a lot of the heavy lifting. So sometimes it's a producer's idea. Sometimes it's you know, hey, we should do this wacky coach at LSU, and and I know one of the guys there who can hook us up. Yeah, sometimes they come through the correspondent, and sometimes it's just sort of ideas are floating around, and you know, there. I think there's seven of us. I think there's seven correspondents, and it's sort of sometimes it's just, hey, this. I think these two guys would get along. I don't know. You know Seinfeld is, hey, there's a middle-aged Jewish guy who lives in New York. Why don't we put him <laughs> together with the middle-aged Jewish correspondent who lives in New York? I mean, I you know some of this honestly, right. I'm, I'm giving up all the. Uh, all the industrial secrets. I mean, some of it's just timing and logistics, right? And if in the time of in the time of COVID, when people aren't getting in planes, and um, sure. you know, I'm a yep. cab ride away from where Makes we sense. shot the interviews. Yeah. And, I mean, it's sometimes it's just logistics and conveniences, and sometimes uh, you know, it's it's it really depends. Sometimes it's the producer. Sometimes it's the correspondent and sometimes it's just kind of a toss up and Hey, who's, who's available and who's convenient for this story. What did you have in your notebook when you sat down with Jerry? Like what, what, what did you want to talk to him about the most? Did you know where you wanted to go with it right away? It was cool that you got to to sit down with his wife. I found that really interesting just to see him kind of just see him change just a little bit, the way that we change when our wife is right next to us. You know what I mean? And, and And to see that on Jerry was really cool, but Going into that one, like, was there something specific you wanted to get to? Was it what was your approach there with Jerry? Um, yeah, it's it's a good question because these interviews are a real mix of. There's a lot of preparation, and yep. there's a big sort of you know you 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 read as much as you can read and you watch as much as you can watch. I mean, these are not. You know, so sometimes in sports you you go to a game and you just kind of roll with it, right? Yeah. I don't know. You go go to uh, the NBA Finals, and if the Lakers win, it's one story, and uh, if the Heat win, it's another. And you're just however the game goes, you go. 
Um, these, this is a little bit different because you have a certain idea of, well, here are some topics that I think might be interesting. The flip side is you've got to be flexible enough so that if someone says something really interesting that wasn't in your preparation and wasn't in your questions, you got to, you got to run with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's sort of a mix of, you want to do your homework and you want to, I think it's also important to show the, um, the subject you've done your homework. Um, I did a, I did a piece a few weeks ago with, with Viola Davis and it was a lot about theater and her history. And, and I think she appreciated that, you know, we, we, we'd done our homework and we knew what plays she was in, in the nineties. And we sort of knew the chronology. We knew the name of her small hometown. Um, but by the, so, you know, you, you, you come loaded and you've got questions and you've got ideas and, you know, some of the questions, honestly, it's not live TV. So it's a lot like writing an article, right? Where you, you can ask, uh, you ask Larry Bird 10 questions and if eight of them, he has no use for, but two of them, he's really into those are the two you use. Right. And this is, this is sort of similar. I mean, some, some questions land more than others. And sometimes the responses surprise you. And sometimes the interview goes in directions you never thought it would go in and you just kind of have to roll with it and then sit down afterwards and, and try and find your best stuff. Yeah. And I think it's nice too, in the, in the era we live in where you only have however many minutes for CBS, but there's another handful of minutes that live on the 60 minutes app and, you know, things like that, where you get a little bit more, you know, I know certainly that one, I wanted more Jerry and, you know, this guy that I know, <laughs> it's kind of cool to me, you know, so I went right to the app and, and watch more. So that, that's kind of cool too, that you got a little bit of extra space to stretch out on these a little bit too. Yeah. I, I always say like, you know, 30 years ago, can, can you imagine the gold when there, when there was no, uh, you know, there, there was no website, there was no social media, there was no 60 minutes overtime. You know, this is yep. obviously isn't unique to 60 minutes, but, uh, you know, same thing at Sports Illustrated. If you've got a great interview with Kyrie Irving, that was a joke, but, you know, if, you, if you've got a, <laughs> whatever, you have a great, you have a great Steph interview, you have a great Steph Curry interview. Right. Um, there are all sorts of ways you can use these sound bites and you can, you know, do digital extras, or you can even run the Q and A online. You know, twenty years ago, you had a great interview with whoever Ken Griffey Jr. and well, you got you got four pages, and whatever you don't use stays in your notebook. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's it's nice. I mean, you know, I, I think it cuts both ways. I mean, I think the flip side is um, you really use, you know, I'm, I'm sure in whatever ni- 1986 you really made sure to use your best stuff because if you didn't, it wasn't going to see the light of day. Um, but it's nice to have that outlet now. So when Viola Davis tells you some amazing story that doesn't quite fit into your allotted time, there's still a way for it to, uh, for it to breathe and, and for the world to see it. Well, yeah, it's like those B side albums, you know, sometimes you, yeah, exactly. you, you understand why it didn't make the, the album, you know, but then other times you're like, Oh, I can't believe they didn't try on time with that. I was thinking about what you were saying with the um, leftover stuff. I mean, the great Jack McCollum, you know, he took all the interviews he had left over from Dream Team, amazing book he did, turned it into a podcast. You know what I mean? Like, what a, tw- what a 2020 thing. I was thinking, too, when you were talking about how you were saying, you know, you want to win them over with preparation. And I've experienced that so many, so many times in here. You know, I 
I do a book club, and the reason I do the book club is because I can get people on who wouldn't come on otherwise, and that's the honest truth I've said a million times about it. But I do read every single book, and you can tell sometimes, you know, I can tell the moments where I kind of win someone over. You know, you can feel it. You can feel it shift where they're like, right, oh, okay, right. this guy gave a shit about this. You know, you can you just tell sometimes. Actually, one I can think of, it's funny because we mentioned Howard earlier, is when I had Artie Lang on. You know, I worked so hard to get Artie, and I knew I was getting him in a moment where it was going to be one of a string of 30. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I knew he's going to be yeah, going through exactly. the, mo- you know, and where he's going through the motions or whatever. And I could feel that moment where he, where I won him over. You know what I mean? And, um, yeah, so I, kn- I know exactly what you mean about that. Not that I'm trying to compare myself to you at all or put myself in your league, but I can relate to that certainly as an interviewer where sometimes you can use your preparation to, to win someone over and to make them feel like it just brings them to a different level, but. Right. Do you have a no? And I think you yeah. know. I, I mean, I've been on the other side too, where you know, it's exactly what you say. You do these book tours, and yep. somebody says, you know, I have not read your book, but I'm curious, what made <laughs> you want to write this book? Yep. And you, you don't get pissed off. I mean, you know, it's a, we all have a finite amount of time in our day, and I get it. But you know, that puts you into one mode, and you're like, all right, well, I'm just going to kind of go through the motions and give the same talking points, and you do the interview afterwards, and someone has clearly read the book it's a completely as a subject it's a completely different interview you perceive the person differently you see the conversation differently so i I think it's important you know whether it's 60 minutes or whether it's radio for book tours i I think it's important to sort of let the person on the other side of the conversation say listen i'm not just reading off uh you know i'm reading off a one pager here right yeah i like i think i made a decision like man if i'm gonna get frank to ford on you know, like this is a once in a lifetime opportunity for <laughs> right, me. Right. You know, I better not blow this. I better have read every page in that damn book, you know, and, you know, and now looking back, it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. You know what I mean? Because he didn't live much longer. And I'm so, I'm so, I don't know, I want to say grateful to myself. That sounds ridiculous, but I'm just, I'm happy that I did it that way, that I took advantage of that moment, I guess. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but. Um, no, I totally get you. Yeah, you made the right call. You you honored him too. Yeah, you, know? you honored yourself, but you also you're honoring the subject. And that's another that's another one of those moments too. Where I think he came on and he heard me, and he you know he obviously doesn't know who I am, and you know I think as it we got five or six minutes into it, he's like, oh, okay, this is this is a real you know actually I, someone was talking. It was on it was um one of the many interviews I've heard where someone talking about Eddie Van Halen. And they were talking about how they met him one time and they were talking about guitars, you know. And then when Eddie realized that this guy knew guitars, it like took him to a different level in terms of the interaction, right, right. you know. So I don't know, maybe it's like that. Do you have a um, you have a dream 60 minutes piece you want to do? Is there something in your head you're like, I got to get this on 60 minutes before I'm done with this job? Like, is there is there anything you have in mind or I don't know? Um. Oh man, that's a good, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I feel like we, we do this in sports too, right? Where they say like, is there a dream interview? Right. And to me, to me, it's all about the content and not the subject. Right. So you could say, Oh, I'd lo- pick, pick it out. Well, I'd love to interview Tiger Woods. And you're like, yeah, but if Tiger Woods isn't going to say shit, then it's not a dream interview. If Tiger Woods right. would really right. play ball and <laughs> give thoughtful, sure. measured response, you know, I'd say the same thing with Serena Williams is great. You know, there, there's a lot there. But if she doesn't, if she doesn't go there, then 
there's no reason to interview Serena Williams. Um, I don't know. I mean, honestly, I feel like my my role at 60 Minutes is as much kind of, you know, it's kind of quirky pieces or, I mean, it's more just good stories to tell than yep. here's the guy that's going to go interview Putin. Right. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, it's part of the fun of, I, I wouldn't say just 60 Minutes, it's kind of the fun of journalism and media in general that, you you got to go find the story and there are a million great stories out there and they're cool places and cool people and you try to bring them out. So it's not like there's some white whale. It's not like there's, you know, some discovery you're trying to make in a lab. It's, it's a lot of, it's just kind of finding, finding a cool story and telling it right. So it's, you know, you, you can sort of speak in generalities, but I'm, I'm not sure there's like one, if I don't tell the story of, you know, lobstering in new england uh, i mean I, I feel like it's just <laughs> find, finding a cool story and telling it's kind of the, the goal fair enough speaking of cool stories i got to admit when i saw the cover of your new book and i know you're not going to give me a lot here and that's okay because you know you're going to be on when it comes out um but glory days the summer of 1984 and the 90 days that changed sports and culture forever i'm pumped this is like one I'm really excited about um, for 2021. What what can you give me on it? What what can you tell me a little bit more about what what happened in those 90 days? A little bit, give me a little bit of preview on the book. Let's sell some let's sell some pre-orders here. Sell some pre-orders. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it it came out of a Sports Illustrated story I did on um, the 1984 Olympic basketball team, which was really kind of Jordan's great breakthrough and it was okay. the same summer he got drafted and you know he, he starts the summer as kind of this gangly kid from north carolina who doesn't have an obvious position in the nba and by the end he's like has a gold medal he's a number three pick he's going to chicago he's this charming guy that everybody's raving about and he gets his signature shoe deal and then i realized that like the amount of transformative, I, I need to get these talking points down when this book comes out. <laughs> it's it's practice for that. Or whatever. Yeah, but, it's um, practice for that. No, I mean, you, you look at what happened in that summer, and it was Bird and Magic in the finals for a first time, and Wayne Gretzky wins his first Stanley Cup. Yep. And this, this crazy New York sports owner named Donald Trump becomes this national figure because sure. he has a football team. And this network that only does sports finally turns a profit when they realize that they can charge a sub fee that being ESPN and yeah. it's the first WrestleMania and there's an Olympics and it's, you know, one, I think in three, I got to get this right, but I, th I think in three consecutive weeks, purple rain born in the USA and like ghostbusters came out. Oh, nice. And just that's a all run. This stuff, you know, yeah. Like, yeah. Van Halen, 1984. Kid. Yeah. Van Halen. Yeah. Van Halen, 1984. Yeah. I think that was, um, that was later in the it year. It was the yeah. uh, there, there was this new computer called the Mac. Oh, from a company named Apple that was going to bring personal computing into the house, so you didn't have to just use the office computer. Everyone could have a computer one day. It was called a Mac. It was just all this stuff happened that didn't seem like a huge deal at the time, but you string it together, and it's like in three months of one year, you literally had like sports and culture getting rewritten was the so that's, that's kind of the idea was the article rare air time michael jordan the 1984 olympic trials and me 
Yeah, you, uh, okay. So I, I did a story April, about the, the April thirtieth, uh, two thousand fourteen. Yeah, April thirtieth, two thousand fourteen. Oh man! Yeah. So um, the story with that were the, uh, you know, I was like in middle school, and the the Olympic tryouts oh, yeah, were are. held in my hometown. <laughs> it's like Barkley and Jordan and Patrick Ewing and Carl Malone, and they all came to my town, and. You know, it was like Michael Jordan would be walking down the street eating ice cream and saying, like, can anyone give me a ride because my feet are tired and I don't want to walk. And it was just, an, it was like the circus came and no one, you know, the, no one really knew who these guys were and nobody cared and there wasn't security guards and agents. It was just what a time. bunch of young basketball yeah. players trying to make the Olympic team. And uh, so someone, I, my publisher asked me if I had any interest in turning into a book. And I was like, I don't know, it's kind of, it's a fun story and I love it, but it's a little thin for... 300 pages but then i started poking around more about everything else that happened that summer and i'm like all right now i think i got i think i got an idea that's awesome i'm a huge fan of the whole i'm gonna have a lot of fun with this one me and you're gonna have a lot of fun with this one like you know sl price had his aliquippa article in si you know turned into a book a really good one too and uh there's a that's the first one that comes to mind there's a bunch of examples of that where I kind of nerd out on the idea of these articles morphing into books. So I can't wait for that. Again, let me talk about it one more time real quick. It's called Glory Days, the Summer of 1984 and the 90 Days that Changed Sports and Culture Forever. And, like, I love the cover. It's got the boss on it. You got Prince on there. Gretzky's on there. Jordan's jumping out of the thing. So I'm excited. I'm an 80s. You know, I was born in 1980. So I'm like right in the middle of am I an 80s baby or an 80s guy or a 90s kid, 80s kid, 90s kid. That's kind of both, but um, I can't wait for that. All right, couple, oh, couple more, and I'll let you go. Um, SI. So look at, I'm hanging in there uh, because I love SI, and um, you know, I grew up literally running to the mailbox from the bus to the mailbox every Thursday, you know, to pull it out. And, um, that's the one thing I'll say right now that hurts me the most is I have no idea when that thing's coming. Um, you know, it's a very nice magazine now it's good quality and it comes, I don't know when, which hurts me, but where do, what do you, th- where do you think it stands here as we kind of close out 2020 big hire, this week was announced on the basketball side, um, and I think a little bit of room for optimism where there was maybe some darker periods earlier in the year. Where do you what do you where do you where do you think SI is at right now? I never want to put you in a bad position or anything like that. So I'm going to give you a chance to kind of go another way with it. Like, where does SI stand as we close 2020, and what do you think the future is in terms of 2021 for its for its rebirth or um. however you would phrase it? Um, yeah, I will try and choose my words, uh, carefully. No, I, I hear a lot of what you're saying. I mean, I think there's a lot of nostalgia there my myself included. I mean, I'm a little older than you, but I had the exact same experience. Yeah. Thursday was SI day and I hope there was, you know, some basketball in there because basketball is my favorite sport. I think we all have this attachment. I don't, I mean, it is no longer a weekly magazine. I would contend that quality wise, it is as good as ever if, if the frequency is dropped. The writing is it's still not great. Been, uh, the writing is still there. Yeah. I, I have to say, too, I mean, this is one thing that people don't necessarily see. I mean, the, the quality of people that work there. Yeah, I'd, I'd say the same thing about 60 Minutes, too. But, I mean, it's just, 
it's like still a wonderful place to work. And, you know, I, I started there in the nineties and obviously it's been, it's been a wild ride. It's been a wild ride for anyone in media at that time, but the quality of people and sort of the, the dignity and the meticulousness and the collegiate, it's still like a great place to work. Um, there's a lot of good work being done. This has not been a great easy year for anyone, especially if you're, you're covering sports. Um, and you know, I mean, I, I want to go two in the weeds. I, I hear a lot of what you're saying and I agree with a lot of what you're saying. And I think that we're closing the year strong, this string of hires. I mean, ha- Howard Beck, Howard Beck yep. seems to have won the, uh, you know, he seems to have got, gotten the most, uh, retweets, but there were, you know, there were, half a dozen really strong, you know, Chris Almeida from the ringer and Kate Fagan. I mean, there were some really strong hires in the last week that gives me a lot of optimism. And is it ever going to be a weekly magazine that everybody anticipates on Thursdays? Is that ever going to come back? I don't know, but I think the quality of work being done is still really, really strong. And the people there are really, really great. And my attitude is like, until that changes, I'm in. And right. we're all kind of negotiating this wild time in uh, in media, and uh, certainly isn't restricted to uh, you know it's not restricted to, to weekly magazines. I mean, I think every everyone in this game, it's, it's been a wild ride, and probably will continue to be so. But um, I think we're we're closing strong in terms of 2020, and there, there's new leadership. We have two two editors in chief now who are doing a great job and work really well together, and there's Digital and print is no longer, those lines are uh, happily getting blurred. And, you know, I'm a sort of, I have guarded optimism. And the reason it's guarded is because of the industry, not because of the people I work with, because they're, they're fitting. I mean, you, you know, you, you've had half these guys on the, you know, you've yeah. had, you've had two thirds of the staff on you. Don't take my word for it. Right. I mean, it's the, the people you have on, uh, I'm sure will, uh, comport with what I'm saying. I mean, it's, it's great people doing great work. I can't control the economics. I can't control sort of the metrics of digital. I can kind of can only control what you can control as a football coach would say, but, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm all in. Well, that's a very honest answer. I appreciate that. Thank you. But here's what, what I would say is just that you're ending on a hire, right? Like ESPN is ending on departures, right? Where, you know, and I think that just for morale, that, that just feels different. You know, the Sports Illustrated ended the year. How did the year end? Oh, we added Howard Beck. ESPN, how did the year end? Oh, Tom Rinaldi left. You know, I don't know. That just feels a lot different to me. And then, right, like right. I like I said, you know, I started this. We talked about starting this in 2011. And right around then is, was the, the iPad edition of the magazine, which I fell in love with. I thought I was wrong. And that's why I'm probably still in my bedroom here. But, like... I thought like, oh, they, they figured it out, you know, like this is the future of this, and you know, this is this is amazing, like it works so good here. And, you know, I always remembered someone said to me like, that someone said to them, it's illustrated, don't forget illustrated, and that part was so great on the iPad, but that hasn't turned out the way I thought. But I don't know, I, I feel like maybe a year ago we're having this discussion, and I felt like there was just a little bit of a stink on just the name, you know, the there's just this negativity and. I don't know. It feels a little different this year. It just feels a little bit more optimistic, I guess. Um, and I would be honest uh, no, about that. No, I'm really that. Yeah. I'm happy to hear you say that. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm 
we're not we're not naive about these things, and there's yeah. some you know re- regrettable headlines. And regret, but I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, if if this were a stock, it's uh, it's trading higher now than it was um, maybe at the beginning of the year. And I think you're right. You're, I mean, it wasn't again. It wasn't just Howard Beck. I mean, there were half a dozen hires in December 2020. Um, is I, I think a very nice statement. Right, and even before. I mean, when did Pat Ford come on? It was this year too, right? Did I say his name right. Do you say the E or not? Um, Do you say the E on Pat Ford? Yeah, I think Pat Ford. Yeah, he's probably been elite. Yeah, he's probably been. Yeah, and he's been. He's done great work on college sports, and yeah. he and October Ross 2019. Kind of pandemic. Yeah, 2019. All right, October so 2019. Yeah. Yeah. So sophomore, that uh, sophomore sophomore season. Yeah. No, I, I think there, it just feels a little different. The optimism, optimism, um, and again, like I said, just arrivals are so much better than departures, especially in 2020, where. You know, exactly. look at you always hear about this job's gone, this job's gone. So, all right. The sportscaster here with John Wertheim. You can follow John on Twitter uh, if you'd like. And uh, I would say to do that just because if you do, you can get the updates on the book uh, that we talked about. I'm sure there'll be some happenings as the 2021 gets going. And you can figure out what's going on uh, with this other stuff. T- tennis is still a love of yours, of course, and you still follow tennis for um the magazine what do you think about 2021 for tennis obviously 2020 was way different as it always is you know there's majors are in different spots or not played or you know in bubbles whatever like do you think it's going to be a more seamless 2021 here um what do you think for tennis what will be the storyline or two that you're interested in the first quarter of 2021 in terms of tennis um, the good news is there will be a major in the first quarter of, of 2021, the Australian Open. Yep. The bad news is uh, it's you know it's a few it's a few weeks later than usual. It doesn't look like there will be uh, overseas media. There will mm. be players quarantined. You know, I, I think honestly, I think it's gonna. I mean, the two things about tennis. One is that um, it is a relentlessly global sport, which is one of the things I like the best about it. It's a real asset. It's not an asset in the time of a, a pandemic and, and travel restrictions. So tennis is really sort of has complications that you don't have when you can set up an NBA type bubble and everyone can go to one location for uh, yep. for ninety days. Um, the other thing is that the, the players keep playing longer and longer, which is great. Um, you don't have these compressed windows where Players only have a few prime years. You can really string it out. It's great. It means Roger Federer and Serena Williams are going to be 40, 40 years old in uh, wow. 2021. But, um, you know, the, the show show can't go on forever. So between the uncertainty of the pandemic and the possible retirements of uh, two of these absolute titans, Throwing in Olympic Games, but that also has uncertainty. Right, uh, a lot, a lot of question marks. It's going to be an interesting year for tennis. Do you plan on covering the? Are you? Is, is the Olympics on your calendar? Will you be going to to it if it happens? That is a good question. Um, I'd sure. say fifty fifty. I mean, 50. I think you know, Sports Illustrated is planning on. Yeah, I, I, I could see myself. Um, I, I was gonna, yeah, I, I'd, I'd say fifty-fifty. I mean, I, I went to the French Open. I, sure. you know, I'll, I won't go to Australia because they're not accommodating uh, foreign journalists. But I expect, you know, I expect Tennis Channel will be at uh, Wimbledon and uh, the French Open. And I'm, I'm on the fence with the Olympics, but I, I could see myself going to Tokyo. Yeah, 
I'm surprised they didn't move the Australian Open in New Zealand. I thought I read the other day that they, they have <laughs> didn't they declare that COVID is no longer in New Zealand at all? They've eliminated COVID. Pretty amazing. I mean, Australia's rates too are like, you know, they're they're single counties in South Dakota that have more cases today than Australia's had for the whole pandemic. I mean, right. both of those countries have yeah, I mean in, in New Zealand just did a fantastic job. Well it's nice to be um, an island, right? It's nice to be a little island like that. I think it's a little bit easier to yeah, mitigate. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it I don't know. Helps. I think uh, it also helps to have uh, a, a certain level of social trust, and you know, they, they didn't have people thinking masks were uh, a hoax either. Um, but, but I think that's what it's interesting. I mean, Australia is has this quarantine and this three week delay on the tournament, not because the rates are bad, but just they're worried about people, people coming from overseas. In. Yeah. So uh, if, if it were a, a national tournament, not an international tournament, it'd go off no problem. Sure. Uh, let me ask you this. You, you do a little UFC, too. Did you see the main event in the last card? Um, Moreno versus... Oh, I- little guys. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, Ooh. I did. I also saw my friend, uh, tennis guy, Cub, Cub Swanson, keeping his uh, career alive in his late 30s with a sensational knockout. You, you know that, um, that Figueredo went... Uh, apparently, he weighed in at 125, and he fought... It close to 150. Yeah, I heard that. But, um, yeah, that he. Yeah, because he's big. He was the one cutting weight to get down, right? To get into the, and then he just puts it all back on and that quick. Like wow, yeah, that's why that was like, an I, I unbelievable put on, fight. Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's one area of uh, a sidebar to your point. It was a great, great you know, that's yeah. that's fight of the year. And these, these little for for a division that was in danger of being eliminated. Um. These little guys put on a show, but uh, I, I do feel like that's one one aspect of MMA that I feel like doesn't get quite enough attention. So much of these fights, I feel like, are if they're not won and lost in the weight cut, right? Uh, it has a huge bearing on outcome. And Real Sports did something on it. I saw. Did you see that? Real Sports did a piece on no, it. No, I didn't like, see that. Real recently, and it, it was kind of focusing on like the twenty four hours that in like. People getting ill, kidney shutting down. Like, it just was wild. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, wild. Like, I couldn't believe it. Like, how am I going to see that? Yeah, I it, see that. it's recently, within the last six months, probably, of shows. Um, um, it, is there a UFC fight for 2021 you, you are hoping is happening? I know Connor's coming back, right? Isn't he in January fighting? Uh, Connor McGregor, I think he's 250. Yeah, I think. Dustin. Yeah, he fights. Um, Dustin. He fights Poirier. He fights Poirier, Dustin yeah. Poirier. They, they've already fought before too. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think everybody wants to see what's happening with. Uh, everyone wants to see what's happening with Khabib. Um, you know, J- John Jones, a decade into this, and a lot of uh, a lot of highs and lows. Many of them his own doing. I think is still sure. a, a fighter you'd, you'd pay to see. It'd be interesting to see. I mean, I like this that Justin Gaethje, who lost to Khabib, is. Interesting to see if he gets a bounce back fight, but um, no, I mean the UFC even ten years ago. But when I first got into the UFC, probably fifteen years ago, it was it's how could you how how could you justify this thing? Is it real or sure. is it fake? Do people yeah. die? Like how this is human cockfighting? If you told me right now that basically UFC was what would be that's what's propping up, uh, you know. ESPN subscription services and uh, they're still going strong and they're right, a multi-billion plus. dollar company. Yeah. It's, yeah it's, um, so yeah, I mean, I think one of the beauties of UFC too is 
you go a lot for the show and not for the, you know, you'll, right. you'll, you'll buy the card to buy the card. And if, if you don't even know who the headliner is, it almost doesn't matter. I'm that way. Cause I'm, you know, I'm a casual fan. So I'll just, I love to watch the big fights because of that, because of the show, you know, the, you mentioned Jones. I'm hoping I didn't dream this, but I was going to ask you if you follow him on Instagram. Cause I could have swore I seen a post of him in like army fatigues with some kind of giant, gun doing pull-ups but it is not on there so hopefully i didn't dream that but he is an oh, interesting yeah. character like i swear to god that i've seen on his instagram him dressed in total army fatigues with a giant like i don't know if it was an ar-15 i don't know anything about guns but a gun that looked to me like it could have been an ar-15 right and then yeah, him doing pull-ups in that attire which included like some kind of mask or helmet, wild. I mean, he's a really just a, and it's not there anymore. So I don't know if yeah. they they said like you got to delete that or alternatively, it just could have been in his story. You know, those kind of time out or whatever. Yeah, right, right. Um, he's a uh, he's he's a product of uh, product of upstate New York. So yeah, you don't know what you're getting there. Product of Western New York, right down the road from me in uh, Rochester. Okay. Yeah, him and his brothers. All right, I'm gonna let you go. This is too long, and I feel you fading. Uh, let me get a few things out, though. John Wertheim, episode eight. He's been with me since the beginning. Too kind to me. You can follow him on Twitter at J-O-N underscore W-E-R-T-H-E-I-M. Of course, Sports Illustrated, one of his gigs. And uh, like I said, the magazine that comes, I wish I knew when it was coming, but that's probably just a me, th- me thing anyway. It's beautiful. It's a really nice quality magazine. Um, and the writing in it is still great, so check that out. And then the book, I can't wait for this book. Did you spend a lot of time on Hulkamania and rock and wrestling and that kind of thing? Um, is that in – because you mentioned the first WrestleMania. On, uh, indeed. We have, a, we have a chapter on the rock and roll wrestling, and you're right. Yeah. Very good. You don't, fo- you don't and, follow and- me, so you don't know this, but I have a side project, a podcast called 24-Inch Podcast. Um, which is about Hulk Hulk Hogan and his eighty four to ninety three run at the WWF. It's two episodes in, uh, so maybe I will simulcast that interview on both podcasts. Um, but yeah, oh, t- twenty four inch podcast, kind of like the twenty four inch pythons. Um, but uh, I'm excited for that. I'm excited for the book. Anyway, it's I brought it up because it's called Glory Days: The Summer of Nineteen Eighty Four and the Ninety Days That Changed Sports and Culture Forever. And I think you can – I'm pretty sure you can pre-order that now um, on Amazon. Anything else you want to uh, promote? Mention? Promote? No. God, no. No, uh, no that's great. I uh, take, take a victory lap, seriously. Ten, ten years of this is uh, that's persistence and durability, and uh, I hope, hope we get at least another ten. Yeah, I, you. I appreciate that. It is available for pre-order, by the way, on Amazon. You can get that there. And I remember, John, last story, I'll let you go. I had Peter King on the first year, which is a big get for me, you know. Uh, Joe Piznanski was the writer of the year that year. He was on episode six. That was a real, that was a game changer for sure. Um, even though Deitch will tell you he was the game changer in episode three. But, and he was too. <laughs> <laughs> he was too. But getting the writer of the year was huge. Piznanski was huge at that time. He still is, but of course, then even. But I remember. Peter King said, all right, I'll do it, but I don't know what you're asking me. 
what are we doing exactly? I've heard of pot, but I don't know what it is. You know where it, you have to tell me more about what it is we're doing. Uh, and now, you know, fast forward to ten years later, there's almost a million of these things, <laughs> and jeez, um, it's it's a much more it's a much more crowded landscape than it was when I started. But it's also a lot more accessible when I started. You know what? When I reach out to people, they they know what a podcast is now. But Peter King, he didn't know. He was being straight with me. He, he was not sure what I meant. So, yeah. see, you uh, you're like the MMA of uh, media, right? No, it's um, P- Peter King now has his own podcast. Yeah, so you a much you better saw around corners before yeah. anyone else. Mu- that's great, and much bigger than mine. But that's okay. He's Peter King. All right, thanks, John. Anything else? No yell hockey this year, so we can't like end on that, which is a bummer. <laughs> that's all right. Um, no, that was great. All right, Congrats thank you. Again. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. All right, take care. I'm a little too tall, could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hollering out. She was a black hat beauty with big dark eyes. Points all her own, sudden way up high. I want to thank John Wertheim for being on the podcast. Always love having Wertheim on. Some interesting stuff there about Sports Illustrated, I thought. He was really honest. You could tell he was, didn't want to say the wrong thing, but wanted to answer the question. I appreciated it. His honesty about that. All right, in a second, we're going to go to Jeff Duncan, who has a book out called Peyton and Breeze, The Men Who Built the Greatest Offense in NFL History. And that is the last book uh, for the book club in 2020. So what I wanted to do real quick before that is kind of give you a five or six or seven uh, book recommendations. Could be good, something to run to Barnes & Noble and grab to throw into the um, – into the stocking, or maybe it's one that you're going to buy as an ebook. But some book rec- recommendations uh, from the book club this year, and it was an interesting year because we got less books directly in the mail because of the pandemic. Uh, they started selling us a lot of um, ebooks to read. Uh, but the first book I have to mention is our friend Jeff Perlman, Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil. And the crazy years of the Lakers dynasty, uh, the Jeff Perlman book that came out in 2020. Jeff, obviously a really good friend of the podcast. And if you're looking for a basketball book, uh, that's my recommendation. If you're looking for a college basketball book, The Back Roads to March, the unsung, unheralded, and unknown heroes of a college basketball season. That's by John Feinstein. Uh, of course, this was supposed to come out in concert with the NCAA tournament that was canceled. Uh, John Feinstein talked to us about putting a book out basically at the very beginning of a pandemic and what that meant for the book. And I really enjoyed that interview. You can check that out in the archives. Also, uh, Bertrand Hebert and Pat Laprade, the eighth wonder of the world, the true story of Andre the Giant, this is one over the summertime that we read. A really great book. Uh, one I definitely recommend if you're interested in a wrestling book. If you want to talk about 
a, a legendary wrestler. Of course, Andre the Giant is that, and I thought uh, Bertrand and Pat did a great job covering that. Paul, we're going to get to your book in a second. Paul has a recommendation. I'll let you know when it's your turn, baby. Uh, another book I want to mention, it's by a guy named Corbin Reef. It's a music book, Total Fucking Godhead, the biography of Chris Cornell. Really fantastic. Uh, the tragic death of Chris Cornell. We miss him. Uh, but I thought Corbin did a great job of kind of recapping his career. Uh, and that is a music book if you're looking for for one of those. Let's see. Is there anything else I want to kind of recommend? So we got a college basketball book. We got the eighth wonder of the world that's wrestling. We got a basketball book. Oh, another one that we just recently did that was really cool uh, was Made Men, the story of Goodfellas by Glenn Kenny. That's a movie book. And then if you're looking for a book about a TV show, uh, Andy Green from Rolling Stone, we did his The Office, the untold story of the greatest sitcom of the 2000s. So that's some book recommendations for you there. Uh, Paul, you have a book recommendation as well. You want to tell them about your book? Okay, what do you got, baby? So, like, so like when we like open it up, do you see these like? Yeah, but you should tell them what it's called first, right? It's called Dog McDuffin Fix. It's called Bunny in a Basket. Yeah. Lift the flip, fun. It's a Doc McStuffins book, right? Yep. And how does it work? How it works is. You find where you do, and you open the spots, and they open. Just like that. Beautiful. Check that book out if you're interested, if you're looking for one for a kid. All right. We're going to take a break. It's the last interview of Season 10, the last interview of 2020. Uh, Jeff Duncan from The Athletic. We will be right back. Our second guest today is a graduate of Louisville. He covers the New Orleans Saints for The Athletic, and he has a new book out about Peyton and Breeze. He's making his third appearance on the Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to Jeff Duncan. Hey, Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Stephen. Uh, all good down here in New Orleans. We've got a nice warm front that's just come through and uh, December, it's in the 70s. Can't beat that. Oh, yeah? 70s in December? I mean, it's 31 or something out here today. You wouldn't prefer that? Yeah, sorry <laughs> to rub it in, but one of the one of the benefits of living in New Orleans, one I, of the many. I was there last year, and um, let's see, it was the Tampa game, which I the first week of October, I believe. And, uh, yeah, it was beautiful, beautiful weather for sure. Um, and the Dome is, you know, a, a favorite place of mine in the world. And, and talking Saints football is a favorite thing for me to do. So I appreciate you joining me today to do this. And the book, of course, as I've been plugging it for about a month now, but it's called Peyton and Breeze, uh, the men who built the greatest offense in NFL history. And I have to say, uh, I was lucky enough uh, to make a relationship with Joe Buck through this program over the years. And um, when I came down to the stadium last year, I – text Joe and I said hey I'm going I know it's a Fox game is there any way I could get a field pass so I can walk around and whatever yeah okay sure he says so I get a field pass and I go in the dome and of course you know a big reason for the trip last year was, was like I got to see Breeze in the dome at least one more time in case this is the last year 
and it's one of three home games as a Saint he hasn't played in. Um, but he's out there doing thumb exercises and kind of running around. So I was watching him, and then it just so happened um, that he walked right by me and uh, signed my jersey, and I said to him, and I couldn't tell if he heard me or not. You know how it can be kind of loud down there or whatever, but I said, I just want to say thank you for making all of my dreams as a sports fan come true. And I really feel that way, you know, and reading this book and, you know, reliving that moment. And I try, Jeff, honestly, I try every week when, when he's playing, especially of course injured right now, but when the game ends to just take a second and appreciate the fact that he was on my team that day, you know, and we were talking a little bit before this, before we started just about, you think of all the quarterbacks. I've been a fan since 1987, and I guess Bobby Abair was my first Saints quarterback. But you think of all those quarterbacks, and they're not Drew Brees. You know, I feel like I could watch another hundred years of Saints football, God willing. And there's just it's just not going to be another Drew Brees. No, look, I think of any organization that deserved someone like Drew Brees, it was the New Orleans Saints because of the long history of, uh, you know, kind of subpar quarterback play, a lot of journeymen coming in trying to resurrect their careers, the, you know, patchwork rosters, failed uh, draft picks. I mean, you can just go down the list. I mean, uh, Drew was the first. Yeah, I mean, always trying to find the quarterback, right? Always trying to find the guy. The only one that they ever had before Breeze that was a pro bowler was Archie Manning. I mean, you have to go back, you know, what, 20, 30 years. And I think a lot about the Browns because, look, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and my brother and I kind of rebelled against the idea in Louisville. You, you had to root for all the Cincinnati pro teams, which is right down the road, right? Sure. And we were, like, kind of rebellious. So we said, you know, we're going to root for all the rivals of Cincinnati teams. So we ended up being Browns fans. And I, I kind of have an appreciation for when I started this job of what Saints fans have gone through because I feel like the Browns fans are like kindred spirits. They've never won a Super Bowl. They've never even gotten to the Super Bowl. They have this passionate following, and they've never had great quarterbacks. I mean, you have to go back, I guess, to Brian Sype and Bernie Kosar to find decent quarterback play, but yet they have – they're always trying to find an answer and, and the saints finally found it, you know, and, yeah. and Drew Brees, and he was the perfect guy. He's so much more than a quarterback. And I'm working right now on a, a column about his legacy in case he does retire after the season. And one of the things that the theme's kind of developing is it's, he's so much more than just an arm. You know, he's so much more than just a passer. He gets all this, obviously he's the all time passing leader in the history of the NFL. And he gets all the credit for, the numbers he's put up, the records he's broken, but really what makes him special, and I'm sure you picked that up and you knew that before you read the book, but I tried to make a point in the book of focusing on the intangibles, the leadership, the, you know, the work ethic, all those things that go into making him such a great player and has lifted the entire organization along with him because the standard he holds himself to, everyone else tries to meet that standard. And I'm not sure people quite appreciate that but i hope they do after after reading the book you know i think back to all these guys you know a bear was my first and you know he holds out a year you know they trade two first round picks for steve walsh who ends up being a bust 
you know, they make a good free agent signing in Jeff Blake, I thought, who started really good, had some good games, and then he breaks his ankle, you know, and that opens the uh, door for the Aaron Brooks era, who was very talented, you know, just wasn't the leader, didn't have maybe the the mind for the game to take his uh, play to the next level, but I always have a space for him in my heart because he was the first quarterback to win a playoff game uh, in New Orleans, and he was great in that game too, by the way, uh, him and Willie Jackson, you know, three mm-hmm. touchdowns, if I recall correctly. That was your first year, but yeah, what a great, what a great Saints year to, to jump in on. But, um, you know, I think of all these different guys, and then I remember the Katrina year, I called my fantasy teams that year 16 road games um, because, you know, the Saints were going to be playing 16 road games. And I remember the last game, I don't remember who the hell we played, but I remember kind of knowing we're going to get the second pick, and at that moment, just assuming – as I guess the whole football world was, that Reggie Bush would be picked. And saying to whoever I was watching with, like, okay, who are the quarterbacks in this draft? Because, you know, it just needs to be a quarterback. And then, you know, a couple hours later, I can remember to this day, I was standing behind my father-in-law, not yet my father-in-law, but standing behind him, uh, waiting for my future wife to, to come out of her bedroom so we could leave, and seeing Drew Brees jump into the pile. Uh, for that fumble. And I remember saying to my father-in-law something like, well, so much for golf this off season, you know, something like that. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then it just all, you know, it all worked out what, you know, whether, whether he would have went to Miami, if they would have chosen him instead, you know, whatever the case is, the wrong turn, the famous story Peyton likes to tell, you know, they took him in the wrong part of town or whatever, but I don't know. It was just meant to be. And I, you know, reading this book and like you said i mean we'll get to Peyton in a second but you know i just fixate a little bit on breeze because i just have so much appreciation for the fact that you know like you said he was the first saints quarterback to go to the pro bowl since you know archie manning i still can't believe he didn't win an mvp one of those years it's amazing to me um but an offensive player of the year i mean we didn't win those you know we only had one one playoff game um we won a freaking Super Bowl. I mean, I still can't believe it, right? But I'm sitting below a a fathead of Tracy Porter running down the field, pointing with the great late Will Smith and Scott Shanley trailing him. But um, I just don't know how you could have like like I said. I think I said this already. I'm sorry, but I get this way when I talk about Drew Brees. But I don't know how you could have a guy like I don't know what a player would have to do to pass him on the all-time great Saints list, right? I mean, you have to be like Brady, like someone who comes in and puts up similar numbers and wins six Super Bowls instead of one or hopefully two. You know, I mean, like that's that's it, right? I mean, you think of on the field, off the field, tangible, intangible. Like you said, the things he does around the organization. Was it Jonathan Vilma when he was calling the Saints game earlier this year with Kenny Albert saying, I would try to beat him to the building. And it was it almost wasn't possible to get there before him. He's like, and I did one day and, and then that was it. There was no chance I'd ever beat him again, you know. So I don't know. If I don't know if this is a question, uh, but I guess you know, reading your book, these are the kind of emotions I guess that, that come out that came out of me. Um and I appreciated that about it. Well, it's obvious you appreciate him and, and look, I think almost all Saints fans understand He's the greatest player in the history of the franchise, the greatest athlete in 
the state of Louisiana. I mean, they're gonna, there's going to be a statue outside of the Superdome, or there should be, when he finally hangs it up. There better uh, be. What yeah. he's done along with, you know, along with Sean. I mean, both of them together, and you have to give Mickey Loomis credit as well. He hired Sean Payton and, and kept yep. him around. Um, but but this era has changed the perception of the entire organization. I mean, the, the Saints were always something of a laughing stock, kind of an also ran. They ended up on NFL films, follies, you know, the, all these kind of things. The and they were a little bit, yeah, they were like the lovable losers, right? You know, they never were really taken seriously and all that changed. And I was actually talking to some people about the Pelicans yesterday saying they've now become a model. The, the Saints have been a model for the Pelicans. You know, the Pelicans need to, become the New Orleans Saints of the NBA, become a destination uh, franchise where players like Emmanuel Sanders now tell their agent, hey, seek out the Saints in free agency. That's where I want to play. That didn't happen 20 years ago. People didn't want to come here. They had a history of losing and of dysfunction, and that changed when Sean Payton and Drew Brees took over, and that's very hard to do at the highest level of pro sports. I really can't think of very many franchises that have done it. Kind of the Golden State Warriors, maybe, with Steph Curry. You know, Golden State was kind of a foundering franchise, and now they're a model franchise. The Cubs, when Theo Epstein came in, it's very difficult to do that, and it's especially difficult, the NFL, to do it for as long as the Saints have done it now under Breeze and Peyton, a decade and a half of of competitive, very high-level competitive football. I mean, they're, after this season, Steve, they're going to the Saints will be, I think, second or third winning as franchise uh, since Peyton and Breeze took over behind the Patriots, and they're uh, you know the Steelers are probably number two, and I believe they're going to be right ahead of the Packers. Okay, wow, and that's amazing. Yeah, when you consider how long they've done it. Yeah, and like another thing you didn't mention, night games, right? Like I lived in an out of market, as an out of market fan. <laughs> And I remember the schedule would come out, and I would like, please, just let there be one night game. You know, just let there be one time. I'm definitely going to be able to see them. And a lot of times it wasn't. You know, it was none. Maybe a Sunday night, almost never a Monday night. You know what I mean? It was so few mm-hmm. and far between. You know, and then, of course, we would get on, and, like, Willie Flipper Anderson would have 350 yards receiving or whatever. You know, it seemed like. Um. And then you think about think about the success they've had on Sunday Night Football. I think this year is the first time they lost a Sunday Night game in the Breeze and Peyton era. I think that's right. Um, you know, the first I believe the first one was that Cowboys game in two thousand six, where they was maybe kind of the, the 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 moment where they really introduced themselves to the country as like a very legitimate. I remember the Cowboys. I think were eight and three, and very much favored in that game. It was the week after kind of Reggie Bush's breakout, which maybe helped a little bit. The week before that was the game. Remember where Reggie Bush had the, all those TDs against the Niners, and he was running so fast for another one that he knocked the ball out of his hands with his knee. Um, and that mm-hmm. was the uh, the Mike Carney game, right? What do you have? Three touchdowns, and just it felt like it, right. f- it just felt like a, a turning point for me that they did it on a national stage against the Cowboys, you know. Al Michaels and John Madden called that game, you know, and that was an important day for yeah, me. Yeah, here's, here's, there's a fun anecdote for me about that game. I remember covering that game in Dallas, and uh, Mike Carney had this breakout game. Sean Payton identified a flaw in the in the 
Cowboys defensive scheme and they were leaving the fullback uncovered and the, he just kept exploiting it and they never really adjusted. So Mike Carney has this huge game, right? I think he scored three, three touchdowns. Teams, yep. uh, yeah, he'd never, he, I think he maybe scored one touchdown before that. But after we wrote our, filed our stories that night, we, uh, our crew from the time speaking and went back to our, you know, our hotel right there near, near the stadium. And all of Mike Carney's family was at the, like the lobby bar of the hotel they were all come in from, I think they were from the Pacific Northwest somewhere, Washington State maybe or Idaho. But they were all, they were just having a blast. I mean, it was like the greatest moment of their lives. You can imagine their, their son having this huge game on national TV, plays oh, a, yes. yeah. a, you know, an, an, an unglorious position, fullback. And we had such a good time with them. And they were just talking about how great a coach um, Peyton was, you know, just amazing how he could find this thing. So that was an early sign for me. I, the, the the game I wrote about in the book, if you remember, we do these little um, vignettes called domination on all these yep. games to kind of give the reader a timeline of like great games. And the first one I, I really felt like kind of was a breakout, even though that one definitely was. Like, I think it got tempered a little bit by 2007 season and then 2008 kind of was, was not that great to start. But 2008, they, they played the Packers. And, and, and really just annihilated the Packers, handed the Green Bay Packers one of the worst losses in the history of their franchise. Also a night game. And think about that. That's, yeah, exactly. Yep. And they, if you go back and look, and I know you know this, but 2008 was when the offense finally really kind of emerged. You know, they finally got all the pieces in place. Yeah, They got the receiving core in place, and, and Breeze had had enough time in the offense to really master it. And if you remember, he almost broke Dan Marino's record that season. Yep, Atlanta was the last just game. Short. He was right there, at the la- had the ball right. in his hand. Yep, on the last play yeah, of the season. So that, that's when it really kind of, that's when it really took off. End of two thousand eight, they started becoming an offensive juggernaut. They were really blowing teams out and covering the team. I could see it. I could see this offense emerging, and I realized that they can just fix their defense and get pretty good on defense. They're going to be tough. And I remember going into the next season, they had that great offseason. They got Greg Williams as defense coordinator. They drafted Malcolm Jenkins. They brought in Jabari Greer. You know, they they made a lot of really smart moves on defense. And I remember in training camp, being at training camp with all the other reporters, and we would do something every year. We'd pass around kind of a preseason, what do you call it, a, a poll of what we thought the team's record was going to be that year. And Brian Ali Walsh, my old colleague at the Times Picune, always administered it. And I put 12 and four. And, you know, the, the team was coming off an eight and eight season. Everybody yeah. was like incredulous. I picked 12 and four. Everybody was giving me grief about being a homer, you know, all the stuff you would expect. <laughs> and I said, I'm telling you, they're going to be good. I could tell. And no one thought they were going to be that good. If you go back and, and read from Bags of Riches or any of the books I've written, I mean, that year, everyone had them in the bottom of third of the league or mid pack. So I felt good. I felt validated when they won the Super Bowl the next year because I could see early on that that, that team was going to be special. All right, let's talk about 2009 because I don't know if you, you remember the the game show Stump the Schwab on ESPN. If, if yeah, you, yeah, sure. if, you, if you won the show, you would go to like a bonus round where they would ask you about something real specific. And I always feel like the 2009 Saints would be my topic. But anyway, so they start the season. They they beat Detroit at home. And Breeze has six touchdowns. Right, so right away. It's like they're they're off, you know, like and then the first mm-hmm. the first few weeks, 
seemed like Darren Sharper was getting like a 99-yard touchdown or what, like making big plays early, a lot of long touchdowns. They won a game in Buffalo. I was there, a really hot day in September in Buffalo. Um, and then another do, uh, do, domination, domination that you write about in the book, the Giants game, right, is kind of a, a marker there where the Giants come yep. in. And I, I know on the, the team video um, for the year, the NFL Films has Brandon Jacobs stretching. Have you ever seen this clip? He's like stretching. He's like, man, it's the same old Saints, same old Saints. You know, it's nothing. We're going to take care of them or whatever. And it was not the really? same, it was not the same old Saints, right? Like that was another one of those days. And then you kind of also mentioned the New England game uh, on Monday night. A few weeks later, I remember. I think yep. it was. It made us eleven and zero. I think. Um, I remember when Dante. Uh, excuse me, Dante. When Davari Henderson catches that pass. Davari Henderson, excuse me, catches that pass, and there is no one else anywhere near him. I remember I turned to my friend Eric, who was watching with me at the time, and said, "We're winning the Super Bowl." Because just like New England was the measuring stick, right? That's the team, that's the franchise, and we're running, mm-hmm. we're running them out of the building. Um. So I don't know what you think about, you know, 2009, 13 straight wins. You know, then they lose a Saturday night game. They blew that Tampa game. That made me nervous. Didn't play anyone the other week. And then we get to the playoffs. But what about, you You may mention a little anecdote there. Anything within the season in 2009 you want to talk about just for the fun of it? Because it's awesome to talk about 2009. Well, the, the, obviously the, the Patriots game was a similar moment, um, you know, that kind of, cemented them as legitimate Super Bowl contenders. There's no doubt. But I thought even before that, you mentioned that Giants game. Uh, that was big to me because they blew out the you know Giants in a big game. The Giants came in, I think, really highly rated defensively, and the Saints just lit them up. And then they went on the road to play Miami. And I remember covering that game, and on yeah. Miami they got down really big early. I think they were down like 24-3 to or – you know, right. Nothing was going right. Balls were bouncing their way. I think Breeze had like a deflected pass interception. You know, just things weren't going their way. And they're down 24-3 on the road in a, in a game that would be ripe for a letdown, right? You had that big win against the Giants. You got to sure. go on the road, play kind of an unfamiliar opponent. In years past, that was a game they would have lost. Almost everybody in the league would have lost that game because of all the things we talked about, you know. You're down. It's just not your day. Human nature, you let down. And then they came back and won that game, and they won it going away. I mean, they won by 12 points in that game. Uh, that's when I said, you know, there's something going on here. I mean, this is not like a normal team. You don't win that game. That's yeah. just a, not a game you, you're meant to win in this league. And the way they won it, just coming back and t- getting turnovers. I think Sharper did have another uh, – touchdown interception return pick six and right after the half yeah. all the things that went into that game that that was kind of the indicator to me that they were going to be special we kind of skipped over it and, and when we were talking about that dallas game but another thing that happened in that game was the surprise onside kick right which kind of sets the tone it's like mm-hmm. almost like uh like if you if you make a movie of the saints you might show that as like a, a you know a, 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 something that's coming right um which eventually you know it leads to ambush but it kind of just in my mind creates like Okay, Sean Trumpeton's capable of this, you know, because it was later in that game they were up, but he got another possession, got another touchdown, made it 44-17, ended the game right there. But then, as you were saying, 
That Dolphins game, another example of Peyton and Breeze, right? Uh, Colston doesn't score on like almost the last play of the half. He gets tackled at the inch line. And I think they reviewed it. And um, maybe he's in, maybe he's not, he's not. I remember Peyton and Breeze are talking for a while. Peyton seems like he kind of wanted to kick the extra point. Breeze talks him out of it, and they go for it, and Breeze scores a touchdown on the last play of the half, um, you know, sneaking it in from the inch line instead of a field goal. You know, really, I thought, set the tone for the rest of that game. They, they pull off the comeback. But it's just this mindset between the two guys, like, you know, how aggressive they've been, how, you know, they're not afraid to try to steal possession. You know, they're not afraid. Uh, we've seen it this year, what, one or two times, I think, already this year. They've scored a touchdown, like, in the last second of the half where they could have easily – you know, one, I know the one specifically, I mean, it's almost like if that play doesn't work, they're going to get nothing, you know, and they get a touchdown right at the gun. I forget what game it was this year, but, you know, it's one of the ones Brees was still playing. Maybe the last one he played before. Well, you make, here's, yeah. here's a good point you make that I think, you know, is lost a little bit because we've, we've, we've had Peyton here for now 15 years. Yeah. But, I think his popularity for Saints fans has gone through the roof because of that, because of the way he's aggressive. You know, you think about the organization before that. You had Jim Hazlitt, Mike Ditka, Jim Moore, all defensive coaches, right? So they tended to be conservative offensively because their expertise was on the defensive side of the ball. Of course, the, the, the Jim Moore era was, you know, the dreaded Carl Smith days. They were very conservative, won games with their defense and special teams. Um, and Hazlitt came from a, a you know kind of mostly conservative He's background, a although coach, basically. they were a little, yeah, yeah, they were still a little more aggressive with Mike McCarthy. There's no doubt. But the point is, here comes Sean Payton, and he's just the swashbuckling, aggressive. I'm going for it. I'm not. I'm playing to win, not playing to lose kind of mentality. And I think it just was so refreshing for Saints fans that hey, we got somebody here that's going to kick sand in your face, you know, and we've had sand kicked in our face our entire lives. Now we've got somebody and we've got a quarterback that is our Joe Montana. And we finally got one of those guys. And it just kind of that marriage and that mentality, I think just people ate it up. I mean, they just had never had a coach like that, that, that didn't care. And sometimes it, it you know, came back to haunt him. You know, he, he talked about it this week, as a matter of fact, about losing that game against the Bucks when he called the double reverse. Yeah. And they fumbled. I've beaten all 32 but, teams. But, but for right? the most part, you live with that, right? You, mm-hmm. know, you live with yeah. those those games because you're going to win more often than not. And I think that mentality is what's made Sean Payton so popular. I was at the very first game in Cleveland, you know, obviously being in Buffalo. Was at the very first Breeze and Payton regular season game. And I remember I was in the stadium very early, and Payton was walking around the field. He did a whole lap of the whole entire outside rim of the field. And I remember just watching him walk by me and thinking, like, I wonder what he's thinking right now. And, um, you know, maybe he was thinking, like, man, I'm going for it. I got a chance with this job, and and this is my identity. And it's, it's like I said, as early as example I can give you is that trying to steal that onside kick against his mentor, Parcells, in Dallas, you know, doing that surprise onside. It's like right away there he's saying, this is, this is the kind of team we're going to be. Let's talk about the last couple of years for a second because – it's almost felt like a, a like a second era for them in a way, you know that maybe like when he gets suspended ends the first one, then you get a couple of those seven and nine type seasons in there, and then this, you know, this great ascent that they've had with. I think they have the best record in football since it started. 
in 2017. I remember they played a game here. Look, at I'm lucky as a, a Saints fan in another NFL market. They haven't lost to the, the Bills since I was in high school in 1998. But they won a game here, 44, 50, whatever. They killed the Bills, uh, who were six and three, I think, at the time. And um, they, you know, the great seasons they've had. Here's the thing, though, and maybe this is a criticism of the entire era. We had a 17-point comeback this year in the regular season, and people were like, oh, it's the first time. And the first thing I thought of was, well, yeah, but he should have had one in 2011 in the playoff game, but the defense couldn't hold it. He should have had one against the Vikings a couple years ago, but the defense couldn't hold it. You know, it's like over and over again in this era, it's like Breeze had won the game, but somehow left too much time on the clock. And Peyton's defense, because despite him being an offensive coach, it's still his defense, could not close the game. Is that is that is, right. is, is that the is that the deadly flaw? Is that the you know is that the the thing? Is that that is that the one thing? Is that the yeah but of this era? Yeah, no. I mean, there's no doubt. There's I, I, I highlighted it in the book about how their legacy would be different if the defense could just simply have gotten off the field. And I know everyone wants to everybody wants to focus on the the horrible call against the Rams, and rightfully so, it was a terrible call, but. The fact is, the Saints still had a three-point lead. Yeah, and the defense couldn't hold it with the minute. Yeah, right. And the defense couldn't stop, you know, Jared Goff from driving down and getting a field goal. And then, you know, they couldn't hold him out. Obviously, after the turnover in the end zone. Yeah. I mean, in 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 their own territory after that in overtime, and then the Minnesota game before that, to me, is one of the most egregious, uh. heartbreaking defeats ever because that eclipsed what should have been one of the greatest wins of the Peyton Breeze era. I mean, that team, that Minnesota team led the entire NFL in defense. They were dominant. I think they were the leaders in third down conversion rate defense. No one could go into Minnesota and, and win a game like that. It, it, it was another game where things weren't going right. 17 Saints yeah, early. 17 nothing. Yeah, they're down 17-0. I think there was a batted ball that got d- deflected that uh, Breeze threw a pick on or something like that. And, you know, they got down, they, they they really just couldn't get anything going offensively. And the other thing that I think people forget sometimes, in some of these games where the offense has struggled, uh, I think of it last year when they lost to the Vikings. Uh, yes, the Saints didn't have a great offensive game, but they also, yep, it, when Peyton talks about complimentary football all the time, the defense couldn't get off the field on third down in those games. Yeah. Therefore, the offense isn't getting Can't the get ball enough. Yep. Yeah, they can't they can't get anything going. They had like fifty something plays last year, so the offense didn't get enough. That that goes on the defense too. You got to get off the field on third down. You know, you have to have your shutdown cornerback, Marshawn Lattimore, stop Adam Thielen once or twice on yeah. third down. And he like do it. That game so, last you know, year. Sorry, Jeff. That game last year. Breeze again, good, again drove the team down and tied the game. Now get him the ball back right. one time. Get him the ball one time. Mm-hmm. They couldn't do it. It's exactly right. Yep. That's exactly right. And that, that to me, is what, what should give Saints fans optimism because this defense this year is much better. They're, they're, they're much sounder. The, the, the improvements they've made, I think, have been very shrewd. You know, Terry Fontenot, Jeff Ireland, Mickey Loomis, the personnel department should get a lot of credit. They've made these subtle little um, supporting role improvements. Quan Alexander over – Alex Anzalone, Janoris Jenkins over Eli Apple. Yeah, yeah, all these guys that you know they bring in Malcolm Jenkins and 
And so all these things they're doing, their stars on defense are still there, right? It's Demario Davis, Cam Jordan, the emergence of David Onyemata, I mean, Lattimore. But improving those other positions, yeah, they've all gotten a little bit better, and it's made the defense really good, and they're getting good and confident at the right time. And I think this defense is certainly sounder and healthier. I mean, that's the other thing. Last year they they lost uh, Rankins and Davenport late. Uh, if they can stay healthy, which right now you can make the argument the Saints are the healthiest team in the entire league. I mean, they've had some their share of injuries. They haven't lost anybody to season-ending injuries like right. most other teams. Right, breezily back. Uh, they're in really yeah. good shape. Yeah, yeah, they're in really good shape. So Here's the thing, and, and we got to mention, you know, we talked about it quickly, but like in 2011, it's such a heartbreaking game because Breeze wins the game twice in the last two minutes. The defense can't hold either time. And then the next day, the Giants – beat the 15-1 Packers. It's like, man, I know the Giants won the Super Bowl that year. Okay, but there's no way they're beating the Saints in the Superdome that week. They're just not. I'm sorry, they're not. You know, and it's maybe one of those debates that you can't win because it, or lose because it, the game didn't happen. So, like, who can be right? But I just love our chances in that game is, I guess, what I'm saying. You know, so that really hurts. But, okay, a couple quick, quick. Oh, and to be fair, to be fair, real quick, because someone might call us on this. The defense did get a stop in that Eagles game, you know, thanks to the ball somehow getting through Jeffrey's hands, and um, Lattimore did make the pick that time. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. To but be that fair, was a little bit, a little bit fortunate there. Right. We'll give them that one. Although, boy, did they they get lucky because I sure felt like I remember when <laughs> I sure felt like the Eagles were gonna were gonna score there. But um, luckily, uh, Lattimore did make the play when when it was there to be made. All right, a couple. Quick ones, and I'll let you go because I could do this all day. Believe me. Um, so I remember when the the play happened, the the Rams play. I remember that Peyton said something to the ref like, "That's a legacy changing mistake." You know. So I know that Breeze and Peyton, Peyton especially, are they're thinking about their legacies, right, and what their legacy is going to be. And to me, it's it's a done deal. Like I don't care if they get a second. No, I care. Believe me, I care. I want him to get a second one more than anything. Believe me, I do. Uh, I would love for Breeze to get the Elway exit. You know, like that'd be a uh, like oh. But I don't feel like they need it. You know, I feel like for me personally, at least as a Saints fan, they've given me two things that I I never thought I'd have as a Saints fan. One relevancy, and a long period of it. And to a Super Bowl. So to me, the legacies are good. But I know it's something they're thinking of. I feel bad for Breeze because 2011, defense doesn't give him a chance. He, he could have had a chance to play Brady in a Super Bowl. The refs said in, uh, in 18, again, it could have been Brady. You know, maybe we're talking about Breeze having two Super Bowls and beating Manning and Brady in both of them. And beating the two best, the guys, you know, the two best QBs of his era. And Breeze beating both times in the Super Bowl. It didn't get to happen. Um... But what about their legacies? Like, where do you feel they are now? Do you think they need another Super Bowl to bring them to some kind of other level? Like, what about that legacy and where these two guys stand as we talk today? Well, I think of it in terms of being on the Hall of Fame selection committee and what their Hall of Fame credentials. Certainly, Drew Brees is going to be a first ballot. Yeah, his no is brainer. A I mean, he's, he's <laughs> yeah. going in. Yep. Yeah, he has no worries i think sean payton he might need a second is one. probably still a strong candidate but he's probably going to need to win another super bowl or at least to get to the game 
and and just I'm just speaking from uh, you know the context of being in that room, sure. knowing what my peers and colleagues say, uh, seeing how they view the Saints. And nationally, while Saints fans, all most of them all feel the same way you do, understanding where the organization was before he came in, before both these men came in, and where it's at now, it's night and day. But for their, I think, national respect, uh, their place among the greats in quarterback uh, head coach duos, they're going to have to get back to that platform just to get there. I think just to get on that stage and get back in that game and then let's see where the chips fall, uh, I think is very important to them. And I, I think they've got a great shot of getting there this year. I really do. Things are really lining up well for them to get back to that game. And then, look, if they get in there against, say, Kansas City or Pittsburgh, it's going to be a 50-50 affair. You know, right. both those teams are really good. Yeah. But just getting to that stage I think is important. Anyone with Buffalo. I can't think of a worse thing in my life to ever happen but the Bills and Saints playing the Super Bowl. Um, okay, two more real quick ones. First, I want to ask you about Breeze and the summer real quick because for me it was really difficult because I thought he was treated very unfairly, especially by people in the locker room who knew Drew Breeze. You know, I was keeping score. I saw Marcus Davenport stick up for him. I seen Joe Horn stick up for him. That's almost all I got on my scorecard. I seen a couple other guys say nothing, which kind of felt like support for him in a way, you know, like Benjamin Watson could have kind of piled on. Didn't he also could have kind of came in and helped drew a little bit. Didn't Um, look at, I thought the statement itself was pretty benign. Yeah. The timing of it maybe was bad. You know, it's one of those like, Hey, read the room kind of a things. Maybe he's guilty of not reading it correctly, but this is what I've said on this show over and over and debated with uh, Jeff Passan. Uh, Jeff Perlman, a few other people. Like, Drew Brees spent the year leading up to that feeding the hungry during the pandemic, right? $5 million out of his own wallet. You know, all the money he's raised, $20 million plus for New Orleans since he's been in New Orleans. There's been $5 million more, I believe, donated since the last $5 million. I mean, this guy has done it all. His actions have done more for the state of Louisiana than anyone who's lived there in the period of time that he's been there on the field, off the field, in the community. You know, I think about this time a couple of years ago, at training camp, Drew finishes a little late signing and stuff, misses the bus, walks home with a bunch of kids in tow, following Drew home, carrying his pads, talking to the kids, whatever, just such a Drew Brees, New Orleans moment. Right. And I felt bad for him this summer. I know it hurt him. And it felt like it took a little bit of time when the season started, maybe for everyone to get on the same page. Maybe it's related to that. Maybe it's not. You got a little piece of my heart here talking about that. Do you feel like he's gotten past it? Do you feel like everyone's gotten past it? Do you think it's going to be an unfortunate kind of smudge on him? Like, what do you think about the summer and where Bree stands now? Well, I definitely think they've gotten past it. There's no doubt about that. It hasn't been an issue at all with this team. Uh, I think it was a very unfortunate situation. Um, you know, it was a very emotional time in the country. And so I'm forgiving of some of the, you know, kind of impulsive, what I felt like reactions to it because there's so much emotion involved in that subject. But I do feel like Breeze was somewhat unfairly uh, judged for what was a 15 second um, soundbite. Uh, when you compare a 15-year body of work, uh, I don't think we should judge anybody by something 
so minor. Uh, did, did he probably, was he probably a little tone deaf there? Certainly. He admitted as much yep. and he apologized for it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he, you know, you just have to understand that, that time period, everybody was in quarantine. He's out in California with his family. He's probably in a little bit of a bubble and just wasn't thinking. And, and I still question like what was going on not to shoot the messenger. Cause I'm, I'm in the media business and I always, I'm always going to be supportive of the media, but like it just seemed like a weird setup in a way. It's a Yahoo on Finance. Yahoo Finance. Yeah. Yes, and they were supposed to be talking about his franchise businesses, you know, and and what how he got involved in franchising, what they were doing, talking about the 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 you know kneeling situation, you know, during the national anthem. I don't know what that had to do with anything. So I and, and Drew is the most polished media. Uh, savvy guy I've ever dealt with as an athlete. So it's not an excuse. He's very clear uh, in his ability to read the room on something like that and react. But I just think it it just kind of contributed to why he was so toned up. I don't think he was expecting to get asked about that. He leaned on the same answers that he had given years earlier about the Colin Kaepernick situation. Yeah, and he just he just wasn't thinking about how much it it, it changed and was toned up. So I, I I do think the way he's responded to it has certainly answered a lot of his critics. He's he's responded with actions, not just words. And I know how much that hurt him because he cares so much about his teammates. He wants their respect and their love, and it crushed him. I think to see the reaction for some of his teammates, especially guys like Marcus Colston, who. Oh. You know, Marcus Colston's nickname, The Quiet Storm, oh. he doesn't speak out on hardly anything. And they have a long history together. And so for Drew to see Marcus criticizing him, I think, was heartbreaking to that him. And I know me. he talked to him yeah, privately. He had conversations with everyone privately. And I think they've moved on. I think he handled it exactly like I knew he would handle it. Up front, first class, man to man. Yeah, my dog's name is Colston. And... um you know, I've always admired his the quiet storm part of him, and that was a disappointing one for me. Look, I'm too emotional about Drew Brees, obviously. To be fair, I understand that. You know, a lot of people have said that to me when we talk about this. Like, you know, you you can't look at it through anything but what he's meant to you. That's fine. I'll wear that. I don't mind that. You know, but I'm glad to hear you say kind of what you said about moving on and things like that. I hope it's just, I hope it's not a long-term thing. I just noticed that like anytime he posts in social media, whatever, it's its own animal. But it seems like anytime he does anything, there's this group of people there that want to criticize him, not only for what he said, but then there's this other segment that want to criticize him like for not holding his ground or something. You know, I don't know, but um, it's unfortunate. I'm glad they're past it. All right. Last thing we'll get out of here on this. So he's been gone two weeks He's got one week at least left. It's an Atlanta game that I'm really nervous about. I don't know if you are, but I'm really nervous about the game this weekend. Atlanta's played much better. They had their best game of the season last week. You know, we're going to have to see. Taysom Hill's going to have, have to be a quarterback this week. The, he got that free week last week. He was good the week before. We're going to learn more this week. But anyway, he's going to be back. Breeze is going to be back. And, and this is what I said when it happened is he was already dragging a little bit. You know, there was the tape under the arm. He already had some rib issues. Maybe this was a blessing. He would have never came off if he didn't have to, right? So maybe giving him this time, he is 41, giving him this time off, 
away. He's going to heal. He's going to be fresh. Maybe one thing you can say about these teams the last few years, they maybe peaked a little early, you know, weren't at their best at in the playoff time. Maybe we, maybe we get around that this year. What I know you've already said you like the way it's lining up. What about the return of Breeze, his health, him being fresh, and, and just kind of what do you see for the end of the season, which, by the way, is tough to predict because, like, maybe one day we wake up the day before the playoffs and, like, Kamara's on the COVID list. You know, like, shit like that is unpredictable. But let's just kind of put in context and, and we'll get out of here on this. On the, on the rest of the season, was the Breeze injury a blessing? Do you feel like he's going to come back? healthier than he would have been if he played through. Where do you stand on the rest of the season here? Yeah, no, I think it could be a silver lining in a lot of ways. I remember having a conversation with Bobby Hebert at camp a couple of years ago, and he was saying that as he got older, the thing that was the hardest for him was the recovery. He said, my arm was fine. I could make every throw, but it was the recovery from a game, the physical beating you took, uh, from Monday to Sunday, getting right again took a lot of work. And I know Drew, when I interviewed him for the book project a couple times, said that's the biggest change in the last five years is he's spending more and more time on recovery, trying to get his body right to play a game on Sunday. And that's taken more time away from his uh, family. He's not shortcutting his preparation at all. So that's all still there. Yet he's got growing family obligations. So there's just not enough time in the day. And, and the recovery requires so much work for him that, uh, you know, he was basically getting up now at like 5 a.m. and getting to the facility so he can start all that work. So what I'm getting at is this could aid him in that regard. He's yeah. going to be fresh. That was my to get thought. This period, I think. And here's the other thought, I think, on that. I know how Breeze is wired. He's going to want to come back and play as soon as he's ready. There's absolutely no doubt. But I think – if they can get through this game, and I do think this game is a little dicey coming up. I think there's reason to be concerned with it. Um, there's a lot of factors that go into that. But if they can get through the Atlanta game, uh, Philadelphia is pretty much a dumpster fire right now. I think there's a case to be made to rest him through those two games, get him back for that Chiefs game. Uh, it's going to be a huge showdown game. I think a ga- good gauge game for where this team's at defensively. And, uh, you know, have him healthy for the last – stretch run get him in sync with the offense for when they go into these huge playoff games but they can't afford to really rest him at any time because these teams behind them are right on their heels but if they can get some kind of uh, you know two-game lead maybe in the in the race for the number one seed maybe they can afford to let him you know sit an extra game and get him back to where he's healthy because he makes a huge difference for this team what i've tried to explain to some fans and, and readers is it's not so much about him now putting up these huge numbers. What what he brings to the table is what, what you alluded to earlier, the two-minute offense right before halftime, his experience oh, in that system, so good. knowing how to operate. I mean, you can't replace that. I mean, Jameis Winston doesn't have it. Taysom Hill doesn't have it. They don't have anybody that's got that. He's, his leadership, his command of the huddle, all those intangibles, uh, that is what you need to win a Super Bowl. And uh, they need him back under center as quickly as possible. But having him healthy, I think, is imperative for them to make this final run. The book is called Peyton and Breeze, The Men Who Built the Greatest Offense in NFL History by Jeff Duncan. Uh, you can obviously buy it wherever. You know, you buy books. It's there. Uh, you can find uh, Jeff on Twitter. He's at Jeff Duncan underscore. 
think I got that right. The underscore is at the end. Uh, and, of course, you can read him on The Athletic. Rick. The Athletic, you can read him there. It's maybe too late, unfortunately, for you to get the um, incredible deal they had. What was it? $2 a month, maybe, for the year? Something like that. I don't know. I was already a subscriber. dollar a month right now. Yeah, I was. Oh, it's yeah, still, it's is it still, still active? It's a dollar right now. So. Okay, so it's still time yeah, it's still to get that. Too. Yeah, it's still time to get that if, you, if you're looking to read uh, Jeff's stuff on The Athletic. Him and um, who else is there? Cat is there, right? And... Um, yeah, Cat Terrell, Larry Holder. Larry, yeah, Larry. And then All yeah. Yeah. Yep. Great great people cover this team. Saints fans are lucky between you guys at the Athletic, uh, Mike Triplett. Great it's really a good media crew that covers the team. Um listen, Jeff, thank you for this. Uh first of all, thank you for writing this book because you gave me a reason to kind of sit back and appreciate uh two people that I don't really need an excuse to sit back and appreciate, to be honest. But uh, I enjoyed the excuse to do it, and I enjoyed the time today. Hopefully, not talking too much. I, I told you, I warned you beforehand. I like to talk about <laughs> about this <laughs> with someone who uh, can talk about it with me like that. But um, I appreciate it. Appreciate the book. Anything else you wanted to plug or mention before you get out of here? No, I mean the only thing is, if any of your listeners are are interested in getting the book and they they want to get a signed copy, I mean they can reach out to me on social media or on the Facebook page for the book. I'm doing a lot of uh, personalized signings for gifts right now. People like to have it signed to somebody, maybe a little personalized inscription. We can do that. Uh, we have, I've got a couple of people here working with me on the, on the administrative side. So we're able to get those books shipped out. Uh, if anybody wants something special for Christmas, certainly able to do it through, through my social media accounts. Thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate this. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. I enjoyed it, man. Right, I want to thank Jeff Duncan for being on the podcast. I want to thank John Wertheim. I want to thank every guest from 2020 season 10. Don't forget, you can find this episode and all episodes of the Sportscasters on my SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com slash sports dash casters. You can also find me on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Email me the sportscasters at gmail.com. Shout out to everyone who emailed this year. Always love reading emails and responding back and forth with everyone out there. Don't forget about greetings from Allentown. My buddy Peter Winson, he's on Twitter at GF Allentown Pod. His newest episode is about 1986 AWA. He does a show, and I always love when Peter kind of schools me uh, in the older territories. Uh, I really feel like I learn a lot about on those episodes, so... 1986 AWA this week on Greetings from Allentown. And don't forget every weekend, Greetings from Allentown Live with Peter and Keithy. Uh, That's also on the Greetings from Allentown feed. And Peter and I will be doing the Adams Division podcast. Uh, We're going to try to get four done in 2021 because it is meant to be quarterly. One last thing to plug, and that's the 24-inch podcast. 
It's myself and Hollywood Dave Rollins. And of course, the sweet Paula Bennett is on that as well. It's at 24 inch podcast, the number two, the number four inch podcast on Twitter. Number two, number four inch podcast at gmail.com is the email. We look for emails that we read on the air that comes out every other Monday. Uh, And the next episode of that will be released on, let's see, Monday the 28th. Uh, So look for the next one after Christmas on Monday, uh, December 28th. All right. One last thing for season number 10. I thought it'd be fun to just kind of go back over the season, talk about the episodes Uh, The guests, the debuts, the repeats. Uh, We started on January 16th, which was literally two or three days before I was going to have surgery. My third surgery in 289 days. But I wanted to get at least one podcast in before that hiatus. And I did season 10 episode one. We had Andrew Marchand, who is from the New York Post. It was his debut. Uh, And Matt Crossman was on that episode to talk about Neil Peart. And his passing, we did a tribute to Neil. Uh, Episode 2 then was February 15th. uh, The return after my surgery, the puck daddy, uh, Greg Wyshynski. On episode 2, season 1, and on episode 2, season 10, uh, with Mike Shope from WGR 550. We talked a lot of hockey, sports radio on that one. March 16th, John Feinstein and Jeff Perlman, the first pandemic podcast. Uh, John talked about his book that we talked about earlier on the show, The Back Roads to March. March 21st, SL Price and Eddie Trunk. I remember SL came on. We talked a lot about what he was watching during the pandemic. Uh, March 28th, Episode 5, Scotty Bowman. A surreal moment. The Hall of Fame coach uh, was on. I remember I was watching Tiger King because that's what everyone was watching at the moment. And Scotty Bowman called me. Uh, Aaron Prino from the Shield Divine was on. We had a rock star in 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 the end of March. Uh, April 5th, Adnan Verk. Uh, breaking back the curtain on that one. That interview recorded and was unusable. So I had to go back to Adnan and ask him to record it again. Um, Andy Green was also on that episode. He talked about his office book. Uh, Keith Law was in promoting a book. And then Adam Lazarus and I did a podcast on Super Bowl 25, April 26th. May 14th, Jane Levy and Yaron Weitzman. Uh, Jane uh, just came in to talk baseball with us, catch up with her, the first lady of the sportscasters. Uh, Yaron had a book about the Sixers out. Uh, Jack McCollum joined us to talk about his podcast about the book Dream Team. And uh, Richard Deitch was also on Season 10, Episode 9. It brings us into June, halfway through the year, episode 10. uh, Zach Meisel talking about the 1995 Indians. And Pat LaPrade talking about his book about Andre the Giant. Uh, July 8th, episode 11, Jeff Patson uh, joined us to talk baseball. It was just getting started. The bubble uh, was just getting started, and, and Jeff came to join us about that. And then Scott Ryan and David Lee Morgan did a piece together. Uh, They were plugging a book about the Maslin Tigers high school football team, and they came on to talk about that. Uh, July 17th, Joe Maniello, the man of the brackets on Twitter. He was on to talk about 
his brackets. And uh, then John Pessa was on to talk about his book about Yogi Bear. Uh, a couple of good spots there. Greg Wyshynski, July 31st, season 13. The first person to be on season 10 twice. Uh, talking about the NHL bubble, the hockey that was going on in there. And then Stuart Mandel, would we have college football? Uh, and I remember a back and forth that he had uh, with Kyle Brandt was also talked about in that episode. August 8th, Aaron Schatz, his annual Football Outsiders interview. And Bobby Burak, the first person ever from OutKick, actually got an email from two people asking me how I, how dare I uh, book someone from OutKick. Bizarre. August 27th, right before my 40th birthday, Jim Florentine uh, was on. I remember he busted my brother's balls. And then Corbin Reef was on to talk about his Chris Cornell book. That was awesome. September 3rd, episode 16, Michael Fabiano did our fantasy football uh, chat. The debut of Sora Wise was a rising star in fantasy football. I promise you that. Uh, he was on to talk about, about fantasy football as well. Episode 17, Mike Triplett and I uh, previewed the Saints season. And then Jeff Benedict was on to talk about his New England Patriots book, The Dynasty. Uh, Michael McCarthy was on episode 18, talking sports business and sports media with him. He used to write the um, sports media column in USA Today after Rudy Martsky retired. We talked about that. Rick Emmett was on that episode, The Singer of Triumph. Uh, that was awesome for me, a lifelong Triumph fan, another rock star. Uh, Jeff Perlman made his second appearance in episode 19. Uh, Ryan Aber from the Oklahoman to talk Oklahoma Sooners football. Blake J. Harris and Jonah Tulis. This is a really cool spot. Episode 20. Uh, we talked about their documentary uh, on the book that Jonah had written called. Uh, why is it escaping me? The name of that book. The Sega book. Sega Nintendo book. I can't think of the name uh, for whatever reason. Console Wars. Jeez. Console Wars. Blake and Jonah. They made that documentary. We talked about that. Jason Cole, he was the author of a book on John Elway. Um, episode 21, Andrew Marchand. He talked to us again, his second appearance this season. Sports media there. Adrian Dater on the outer bubble. Episode 22, Ben Ryder talking about his Astros podcast. Ben Ryder and also uh, Jack McCollum, both former SI writers on the show to talk about podcasts that they made that started as articles at on a, in SI. Uh, kind of cool there. Uh, Brandon Sneed was on to talk about his book on Lincoln Riley. Uh, episode 23, Kenny Albert talked to us about the inner bubble uh, in the NHL and also will he be the number one voice of the NF NHL and the protocols calling football games. Talked about all that with Kenny Albert. That was one of my favorite episodes of the season. Glenn Kenny was on that episode as well to talk about his Goodfellas book. And the last episode, 24, Bob McKenzie from TSN talked about his new hockey book. And Damon Hack was on to talk about the Masters and golf and catch up with Damon. And we made plans in 2021 after the Tiger Woods documentary to do a Tiger-only podcast. And then this is where we're at today. We just had... John Wertheim, and we had Jeff Duncan, and that is the 10th season of the, the of the Sportscasters. We did 25 episodes, which basically 
gets us to about a bi-weekly pace, which is really good because we started slow uh, with my surgeries and all that. Okay, it was a great year for the sportscasters, I thought. We had some really good podcasts. It's really fun to see my daughter get into it and kind of help me with it. And that was really fun to do that with her. Uh, kind of made me happy, you know, just to kind of bring her along a little bit in this. And she loves doing the 24-inch podcast with me and my friend Dave. So love that. But look at it. It's been a great year. And what happened was when we did season two, way back in, you know, 2012, we were doing so many episodes that I started to panic that, you know, we got to restart the season. And I think I may have. Okay, so we did season two. And then we had 35 episodes in. And I wanted to get someone really big. So I said, hey, would you be on my season finale? So that's why there was two seasons in one calendar year. And that's why we've done 10 seasons in nine years. And then next year in January, we're going to come back the week of January 11th, which will be the 10-year anniversary of the sportscasters. Jeff Passan, who was on the very first episode of the sportscasters, will join us. Um, so that's where we're at. Thank you to everyone. You know, I try to say this every year, of course. Thank you to everyone who took the time uh, to listen to me and uh, my nonsense. You know, thank you to everyone who downloaded, everyone who tweeted me, emailed me, you know, anything like that. I appreciate it so much. You know, I take it seriously that there's like a million podcasts out there. And to think that someone would take their time to listen to this one. You know, it blows my mind. Whether it's five, five thousand, or five million, I can't believe it's anyone. And I take it very seriously. And if you reach out to me in any way, I guarantee I'll be reaching back out to you because uh, I just appreciate it so much. It's been a crazy year, but we did it together. I feel like. I hope you have a very, very merry Christmas and a happy New Year. And I will be back in 2021 for 10 years of the Sportscasters.